everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Laura Calba, the author of Color in the Age of Impressionism, Commerce, Technology, and Art. And the book was published by Penn State University Press in 2017. Hi there, Laura. Hi, Roxanne. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? I think my choice to study French culture, French history was overdetermined, meaning also perhaps that I didn't really have a lot of imagination. I think the first most determining factor is the fact that I grew up in Montreal and I attended French elementary school, French high school, junior college, what we call CGEP. And from a very early age, for me, school was French and Mm -hmm. French was school. I spoke English at home with my family. And at university, the books that kind of most inspired me were either written by French authors or about France in one way or another. And here, you know, I'm thinking about important books for me at a young age were Roland Barthes' Mythologies, Pierre Bourdieu's Distinction. And it was also a time where cultural history, history of memory was really important. So Pascal Horry, Matsuda. I remember reading Charles Rurik and Dan Sherman. Hmm. And then finally also uh, Vanessa Schwartz, uh, who eventually became my uh, PhD advisor at USC. So Laura, in the introduction to the book, you describe the project as one that, and I'm quoting you here, analyzes the impact of new color technologies on French visual and material culture from the early commercialization of synthetic dyes around 1857 to the Lumiere brothers' perfection of the autochrome color photography process around 1907. So there's so much I want to ask you in this time that we have, but let's just start with these two, you know, big, the big words in the first part of the title of the book, color and impressionism. And I'm going to kind of flip them by starting with uh, the impressionists and impressionism. You make the point that the impressionists were controversial in part because of their unconventional use of color. So can we start by having you give us a sense of what impressionist color was, what it means, and why it stirred up such a fuss? Sure. I think in a way, this might be the aspect of the book that the readers might be most familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that there's been a long-standing fascination with impressionist so-called bigger, brighter palette. The fact that their color choices were not on only unusual uh, for the time, namely by the by virtue of the fact of kind of limiting tonal variation, the variation that is to say between kind of uh, darker and lighter, but also just simply by introducing colors that were unfamiliar, having, you know, coloring their blacks, uh, adding a little bit of blue or purple in a shadow, highlighting the uh, brighter, kind of flashier aspects of visual culture. And and this has been a kind of central part of discussions of Impressionism from Mm -hmm. the moment, you know, they first emerged on the scene in the kind of 1870s and through the kind of art historic, the critical and art historical uh, literature reflection. So it, I guess it depends on um, how you define impressionist palette. On the one hand, you can think about it quite literally in terms of which 
pigments that they use. And there again, there's quite a substantial literature Mm -hmm. stemming from art uh, conservation, uh, investigating the new synthetic pigments that they uh, adopted, or there's the kind of broader reflection about color and the impressionists, which is many times either a kind of condemnation of their unusual disorienting color choices or a celebration of uh, impressionist exploration of color as being a kind of final uh, liberation from the strictures of realistic representation. Well, and it does, it seems to be meaningful, Laura, that the title, the you know, the pre colon part of the title is color in the age of impressionism, not color and the impressionist. It took a while before I came up with that title. I understood that impressionism was very important for the way that we have come to think about color in, you know, in art history, and also just about color more specifically in the 19th century. But at the same time, the key question or the key questions I'm trying to answer are not simply about a group of artists or you know the specific artworks that they created between let's say the 1870s and the early uh, 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so I take impressionism as a way of thinking through developments in color that happened more broadly in the late 19th century. And I think it is it, it in a way that illuminates both new things about popular commercial visual culture and the Impressionists. So let's take on this term and idea that runs throughout the book, obviously, color. You make a few different distinctions between the work that you're doing in this book and some of the other work that is out there, both within art history and the history of color, that this is not a book that's just about an opposition between chromophobes or people who disliked color or new uses or innovations with color versus people who may have, you know, appreciated the new and and changes with respect to the world of color, that you're interested in aesthetic debates, but that you're also interested in what you describe as the pronounced social and political implications of debates. The idea that the, the history of color is also a history of class, gender, and technology, and business. Um, So could you just talk a little bit about the ways that this study of color uh, is different, the kind of intervention that you're wanting to make in this study in the broader field of scholarship on color? So in the history of color, there has been a traditionally a focus, you know, as you mentioned, on taste, advice manuals, uh, prescriptive literature uh, that advised generally women, on uh, their outfits, on how to decorate their homes. Mm. And what informed this prescriptive literature, specifically with regards to color, is a certain amount of anxiety about social heterogeneity or that um, there was a proliferation of different colors that women were picking gaudy, mismatched outfits. And what informed the prescriptive literature was a notion that by ordering the world of color, one ordered and gave form to 
taste and therefore order to society more generally. Uh, since the early 19th century, there was an association between color and a certain kind of primitive nature. Color was associated with children, mm. with women, and uh, other kind of so-called primitive peoples, including you know the working class and overseas populations. And this was a kind of at the core of Europeans' debates surrounding color and their anxieties about what this new, more colorful consumer culture really meant. You describe this book, Laura, as a history of modern visual perception in this period from the bottom up. And you've already sort of hinted at this in in some ways, that this isn't just a book about the use of color in high art, for example, but it's really a book about how color and colors were made in this period in new and different ways. So could you say a little bit more about this idea of doing color from the bottom up? Absolutely. And I think in a way this gets to the core the core question and helps elucidate a little bit also the role that kind of impressionism plays within the book. Mm-hmm. More than the story that I kind of just told about, you know, the kind of battle between the the chromophiles and the chromophobes between uh, you could say the ordinary consumer and the tastemakers. What really interested me was the fact that the development of a new consumer culture increasingly based on the the sensual appeal of color Mm. ended up challenging dominant modes of visual understanding, visual perception, and in particular challenged the way people understood realism abstraction, and fantasy. Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking about investigating the history of visual perception and color from the bottom up, what I'm interested in in exploring and what I I do in, in all the different chapters is look at ways that the democratization of colorful images and objects made people rethink what realism meant, uh, abstraction meant, and fantasy. And this approach is, in a way, you know, goes beyond simply impressionism, for one, and also really draws inspiration from uh, the literature like, you know, Jonathan Crary's uh, Techniques of the Observer, Mm. where he talks about, you know, the modernization of vision and this same type of blurring of categories of visual understanding, but his approach is uh, primarily uh, from the perspective of the history of medicine or or psychology or what at the time was known as kind of uh, psychophysics. And I love techniques of the observer. And at the same time, my approach to understanding the history of visuality was from a kind of very different angle. And and in particular, I was interested in thinking about how the images and objects that circulated every, you know, in everyday uh, environments made people, again, shift their way of thinking about what they saw and, and its meaning. Meaning that um, as opposed to defining vision 
uh, and color perception through the field of psychology and medicine, I looked for the implicit ways that ordinary French men and women understood color. So in the book, Laura, you sort of trace the contours of this color revolution of, in this period and the emergence of this, you know, what you describe as a new visual landscape. And, you know, reading these chapters about not just the Impressionists, but about flower making and gardening and dyes and fireworks and just an array of materials and objects and everyday encounters with color. I had the question too, the one that you pose in the introduction, why has color been neglected in scholarship on 19th century? So what is it that has made color something that hasn't been explored in quite these ways uh, up to now? I think there has been a literature on the history of color, but not from within the field of, you could say, cultural history mm. or within the field of visual culture. That is to say, there's a much more um, traditional early 20th century art historical approach to color. There's also the scholarship, the contributions of John Gage in particular, that tried to relate artists to contemporaneous color theory. And there's also that more technical scholarship that comes out from art conservation. And that these have been, these have been the dominant ways of understanding uh, color in the field of art history, let's say. And it took a while, in a way, for these questions to be reformulated and re reimagined through the lens of visual culture and uh, popular culture. I think photography was so dominant in the field of visual studies in the early 2000s. And photography, I think, is one of the ways that black and white photography shapes our image of the 19th century so profoundly. Mm -hmm. it, it, it requires some imagination to uh, recolorize those mm -hmm. images. But once we are presented with autochromes, which is kind of the first commercially successful color photography process, and it's introduced in the early 20th century, it seems so obvious that the 19th century was full of colorful shop signs, kiosks, uh, posters, and of course, you know, women with their, um, you know, flashy garments. As to why scholars of visual culture have uh, been slow to think about that, I, I think, you know, photography is one reason. And also in thinking about form mm. in popular commercial culture, there has been a focus on I think, collage and shock, the, the category of um, the concept, rather, of vernacular modernism that is um, introduced by Miriam Hansen and it relates specifically to uh, film, has that model really kind of prompted scholars to think about the intersection between modernism and modernity um, from the perspective of collage and shock rather than 
color. Mm-hmm. And then I think lastly, some of the kind of key thinkers that were that were informing the field of visual studies in the early 2000s, and Georg Zimmel in particular, you know, he writes about money and modernity as basically the modern metropolis being gray and colorless as a mm-hmm. result of the equalizing effect of money that, that turns everything into a quantitative value. And, but this, of course, um, has more to do with uh, his own analysis of modernity and money than visual uh, experience in the late 19th century. And I have to say also, perhaps if there's one last reason mm-hmm. why uh, color has been perhaps neglected I think it's authors' fears that they wouldn't get a publisher to accept uh, <laughs> publishing a book that required so many colorful images. I, I, there were plenty of half mythical stories out there that made me wonder whether I'd made the right choice or whether this project was simply due because I'd need color images and. That's that's one of the reasons, actually, that I include the anecdote about Chevreul, uh, Michel Eugène Chevreul, at the very beginning of the book, because he finished writing his uh, magnum opus, uh, De la loi du contraste simultané des couleurs, in... 1835, and then it took him three years to find someone who would be willing to publish it. So maybe that's the maybe that's the last you know uh, kind of more Pregnant. market money oriented reason why people have been slow to um, investigate color. Well, I mean, I just want to stop there for a second because I think this was the first question I wanted to ask you, or the first thing I wanted to comment on, which is what a beautiful book this is. <laughs> Um, and I and I did. I wanted to both congratulate you on the design of this book, which I mean, this is a sound podcast, so I can't hold it up to show people, but they will see some images of it if they go online at the at the publisher site or elsewhere to congratulate you, but also to ask if you had any comments on the design of the book and how it how it came together. I am delighted yeah. with the work of the designer. And so I, I need to mention her by name, Jo Ellen Ackerman. Mm. She did a fantastic job. And in terms of the press, um, I think I also need to highlight how there was funding available. And I am the recipient of two different subventions, one from the Art History Publication Initiative mm-hmm. and also uh, a Millard Mies Award from the College Art Association. So that helped pay for image rights and also for the production of the book. And then uh, Joe Ellen really kind of did a fantastic job putting it all together. It was that that moment where you go from, you know, simply having a manuscript to something that looks like an actual book. I um, I'm still smiling actually because I remember sure. it so um, so vividly. Yeah, Laura, I have to ask you what is French about this story and how you understand this history as a French history? Is there something distinctively French about uh, color in the age of Impressionism? Um, My answer might be disappointing, I think, to some of your listeners in that 
I don't think that fundamentally what I'm talking about, namely the development of a consumer culture that has color as one of its kind of key features, is fundamentally French, nor do I think that what I'm describing in terms of the blurring of the boundaries between realism, abstraction, and fantasy is quintessentially French in some way. But there are both historical and historiographical reasons why it makes sense to tell this story from a French perspective. In terms of uh, the historical reasons, in the 19th century, France played a really important role in the development of a number of different color technologies. French chemists were not the first to develop the coal tar dyes, but they played a fundamental role in developing, you know, the second and third and subsequent dyes. And furthermore, France continued to be the unchallenged leader um, in terms of fashion in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So even when the dye factories were located predominantly in Germany in uh, the 1880s, 1890s, they continued to pay attention to what women wanted and Mm -hmm. uh, designers wanted in Paris. Uh, Likewise, in terms of uh, gardening, in terms of the development of color fireworks, uh, which I also discuss, and finally, uh, in terms of chromolithography and also color photography, French innovators really play an important role. Mm -hmm. But I'd say that the historiographical reasons are perhaps just as important to the extent that Impressionism, the history of modern art. Obviously, France plays a kind of key role in that story. And therefore, it made sense, I think, to uh, use France as a kind of uh, starting point for perhaps a kind of broader reflection about modern visual culture. The book, Laura, is organized thematically with each chapter focusing on a particular color technology, and I want us to talk about each of those now. The first chapter of the book focuses on the color theories of a famous French chemist. So what can you tell us about him, and why was he so important in this period, and in particular important to the history that you're trying to get at? Michel Eugène Chevreul is the is the French chemist in question. Mm-hmm. So he is, to a certain extent, a well known figure both in the history of science and um, in art history. Um, he was a, a kind of well established organic chemist, and this is the f- period of history where organic chemistry is is still just emerging. In uh, 1824, he is uh, named the director of the dye works of the Manufacture des Gobelins, the kind of state-run tapestry workshop. And it's in the context of the work he's doing there as director of the dye works that 
he develops and codifies, we could say, the law of the simultaneous contrast of color. It, it's basically the notion that uh, the appearance of a color is always affected by the color or colors that are placed next to it. Uh, that hue and tone of one color affects the the appearance of uh, the other. So uh, in addition to that, he also develops a system for color naming. Uh, this system was mostly kind of popularized in the form of color wheels, but he initially presented it in the form of a uh, three-dimensional hemisphere representing approximately 14,400 different colors. And thanks to this system, he proposed basically substituting what he described as vague, fantastical color names with precise numerical coordinates. So it's Pantone, basically. (laughs) Exactly. And this was, you know, in a way inspired by the classification system in in natural history and also on the kind of privileging of quantitative measurement in chemistry. But it actually was extremely difficult to create these color wheels. And in fact, you know, to my knowledge and to, as far as I can tell, other scholars have also came to the same conclusions. The 14,400 colors that were in his system were never actually executed in the form of color wheels or hemispheres or what have you. So in the second chapter of the book, Laura, you focus on flowers, the, the growing and selling of flowers and the commodity culture of the 19th century, the idea of new flower varietals, artificial flowers and colors in, 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 the, in gardening and the visual experience of gardens. So yeah, what can you tell us about how flowers contributed to this? The history of flowers is also a part of this history of color that's evolving in this period of the 19th century. I think the chapter on what I call floriculture, the Mm -hmm. culture of flowers, is an important one in a way because it challenges the dichotomy between the natural and the artificial. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to think that it's simply about the introduction of synthetic artificial colors and that these come from industry. And that in opposition to this, there is this sacrosanct natural world um, that is untouched by uh, human hands. So in this chapter, what I, I look at is how starting definitely with more regularity in the 1830s and 1840s, there are French horticulturalists and nurserymen who are importing exotic uh, flowers from faraway lands, South America, Africa. And then progressively throughout the century, there is a a perfecting of hybridization and crossing in order to create new varieties of flowers. And oftentimes there are multiple different goals, you know, to make the flowers bigger, the plants healthier, uh, for them to be easily marketable. And as part of this marketing and and the quest 
for novelty, that is to say, the selling of flowers to an increasingly you know, growing number of hobbyists, there is the pursuit of different colors. So where uh, there weren't any white flowers of this particular type before, they'll try to introduce them. And uh, in particular, geraniums are uh, very fashionable. And there are, there's a proliferation of different varieties and colors. And it is clear from reading this literature and on the hybridization of flowers and also on the popularization of gardening as a hobby among the middle classes that the world of flowers was just as much influenced by fashion trends as that of, um, you know, women's garments. So um, it allows us to rethink precisely this boundary between the natural and the artificial and think about in a way flowers as a color technology and also definitely makes us rethink the history of artificial flowers which I am uh, I was and continue to be particularly interested in and and the, the key question there among flower makers by which I mean artificial flower makers, is whether uh, workers should simply use color to create flowers that resemble those found in nature, however artificial nature had become, or alternatively, they should uh, let their imagination run free and create what was called a fleur de fantaisie, um, that is to say, flowers which primarily through their color, don't resemble anything found in nature. So you get the blue roses um, or the bronze petunias. And um, this is one way here where color kind of serves as the focus of a broader reflection about realism or fantasy. So the third chapter of the book, Laura, focuses on Impressionist painting. And you're looking at things like the growing popularity of synthetic dyes, new ideas about color, the role of fashion. So can you tell us which artists you're looking at in this chapter and why they're significant to your story? The three artists I talk about are Edgar Degas, Pierre-Auguste Renoir, and uh, Claude Monet. And I pick them because they had, I think, the most interesting and complementary takes on the color revolution of the 19th century. And when I, you know, when I say takes, I think that is, um, reveals the fact that I'm not only interested in how the Impressionists represented the world uh, around them, the more colorful world beyond the studio. Mm-hmm. I think, think what is their most significant contribution to the color revolution in a way is their own critical reflection and interpretation of what I describe as a kind of chemical aesthetic. So I'm interested in how they critically comment upon this experience of color as being 
bright, varied, and often also very uh, fugitive, that is to say, evanescent. Mm. In the case of Edgar Degas, he's the one who is the most technically minded and most frequently compared to a scientist. He experiments with a lot of different techniques, um, different media. He also investigates color in his artworks in ways that draw focused attention to these issues of variety and also evanescence. When uh, you look at his very um, well-known series of of paintings of of ballerinas and also pastels, the titles also bring attention to color variety. That is to say the titles are often things like ballerinas in blue, ballerinas in pink, ballerinas in, in pink and green. In fact, in, in, in one instance, he kind of ironically refers to his paintings as uh, mes articles, uh, you know, referring to articles of trade, referring to, and sometimes kind of ironically, to consumer culture and the role that color plays in consumer culture. Whereas Renoir is just as invested and cognizant of this color revolution. In fact, you know, he pays just as much attention to women's attire, the bright colors that they're wearing. But when Renoir himself uh, is asked to comment on color and uh, in particular chemistry, he has absolutely nothing good to say. And in fact, he is kind of nostalgic towards the early modern era when artists used to make um, their paints themselves. And the last instance is I'm, I, I talk about uh, Monet, and Monet's case, in a way, was the most challenging because Monet's, unlike Renoir, just simply doesn't say anything about chemistry when Monet is is talking about his work and talking about color it's exclusively about trying to capture you know light and particular weather effects his letters are exclusively dealing with that and I kind of come up with uh, an explanation for why in a way Monet was unable to reconcile the material color of fashion and even of artists' paints with the pursuit of color as light. And and that has been the kind of um, traditional interpretation of Monet as the kind of uh, most representative, perhaps, of, of the Impressionist has always been about his interest in the ephemeral effects of light and, you know, various weather conditions, and never about his engagement with the color of fashion and um, ordinary visual material culture. Um, and I think there, there are interesting reasons for his inability to reconcile these two worlds. And that's what I explore in that chapter. 
So the fourth chapter of the book, Laura, I mean, I looked forward to reading all of these chapters, but the fourth one I think made me the most jealous of you that you got to write a, a whole chapter about fireworks. It's so uh, fascinating, these large scale pyrotechnic spectacles that you explore in this chapter. And it also makes me want to ask you, I mean, this is true in all of the, the chapters that in the book, but in this one that you're, you know, you're looking at these different types of sources to get at the visual culture of this period. In this case, the business records of a fireworks company that is still operational. Is that right? That is correct. <laughs> and um, I, so these are the records of the Rougierie company, mm-hmm. and uh, which then became the uh, Lacroix Rougierie company, um, and it now is known as the Etienne Lacroix Group. And I, I do have to explicitly thank now um, the owners of the company, in particular um, Etienne and Jean-Jacques Barres, and also especially Evelyn Castera, who granted me access to mm-hmm. these business archives. And this is what identifies me in, in certain ways as an as a historian first and foremost, is that I love archival research uh, so much. And in particular, the more difficult, the better. Mm. And business history of all the kind of different types of archival research that I've done has often been kind of the most exciting, the most rewarding. And in this case, it meant, you know, heading out to a suburb of Toulouse, staying overnight with Evelyn Castera, and just going through documents they had in the basement, and also not being able to visit the entire uh, fireworks plant, because, you know, most of these areas were restricted because they were full of explosives. Um, And that was so really one of kind of my fondest memories and also I think shows how one of the distinct features of, of, of my kind of research methods and what makes it I think most significantly different from what a lot of my colleagues my colleagues in art history are doing is that very often the sources that I use to answer these questions, which are art historical in one way or another, which are about the period I of the 19th century, these sources are sources that are more familiar uh, to historians of technology and to business historians. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, basically stems from my training in history and from the conviction that in order to study popular commercial culture, you have to you have to go where the commerce is mm-hmm. and uh, looking at business records, looking at what is still around from the documents, the activities, the kind of both the commercial mod- motivations that spurred, in this case, the Rougierie's development of colorful fireworks. Um, this is really a, a key part of the story that can't be substituted with uh, either kind of more intellectual history type sources or uh, theorizations. 
And you also talk about the kind of connections here between the, sh- the visual culture and thinking and rhetoric of capitalism in this period and the spectacles that were often put on by political authorities in France, you know, and fireworks kind of being at the center of many of them. So that I found that really fascinating as well. Yeah, and this is typically a story that's told about uh, the rise of authoritarian governments in the 20th century, the the adoption of commercial spectacular culture by, again, authoritarian 20th century governments. Mm -hmm. But if we take into consideration what's happening in consumer culture broadly, um, that is to say, uh, an intense focus on color, variety, bright colors more specifically, Mm -hmm. and understand that pyrotechnists, those developing fireworks are also very much participating in this development of a kind of brighter, more varied palette. It allows us to reconsider what Louis-Napoléon, Napoleon III, is is, is doing. Um, That is to say, we see the coincidence between his political agenda, which was very much based on the organization of these um, massive public celebrations and consumer culture that is you know, not only present in the form of colorful fireworks, but also in department stores and in uh, gardens and mm-hmm. in dye factories. Chapter five, Laura, is focused on chromolithographic reproduction. So please Mm -hmm. tell us what chromolithographic reproduction is and what forms it takes um, in this period. So chromolithography is the first technology that allows for the democratization, uh, mass production of full color images. Mm. And so when talking about chromolithography, we're talking about a a specific lithographic uh, printing technique um, that is multicolored. Now, lithography in its ordinary black and white form had been around since the very late um, 18th century. And in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, sorry, the beginning of the uh, 19th century, there were various attempts at producing multicolored lithographs. Um, it's not, however, until um, Angelman's development of a basically a, a frame, a chase, um, in, 18, in the late 1830s, that chromolithography becomes um, just simply easier um, to, uh, to produce. And so what happens is that, let's say, from the, the 1830s to the 1860s, there are increasingly more colorful, full-color images. A lot of these uh, chromolithographic prints are reproductions of works of fine art. And these are what were called basically artistic lithographs. There's a really interesting story in a way about uh, bourgeois taste and the desire to have access to fine art in, in, a, in a reproduced form. But additionally, 
what happens is that uh, starting even during this period, say between 1830s and 60s, um, there is there are other applications of chromolithography. We see, for instance, uh, labels being printed uh, by Angelman. We see maps, etc. Um, there is, however, a decisive turning point in the 1860s with development of uh, mechanical presses, which are first steam-powered and then uh, powered uh, with electricity. And with that shift, it really becomes possible to produce full-color, like full-color disposable images. And this, again, I think what people um, perhaps most associate with chromolithography in the late 19th century are the large posters um, of, by Jules Chéret. And, you know, they're so familiar that you can buy them in reproduced form in every souvenir shop in, in Paris. And, and this is typically what people think of um, when they think of chromolithography in the late 19th century. Now, one of the reasons that this has become the um, most well-studied, well-known form of color printing in part has to do with the fact that art critics and fairly well-to-do collectors, almost exclusively men, collected these posters and wrote about how the posters of Jules Chéret and uh, Toulouse-Lautrec were essentially works of art uh, worthy of being um, regarded as such. Simultaneously, however, um, and often emerging from the very same print shops that produce posters, there's a there's like a, a host of other colorful uh, imagery that's being produced, and I focus in particular on trade cards, um, in part because. On the surface, at least, they're the exact opposite of what posters are. These trade cards are fairly small. They fit in you know, the palm of your hand. They're kind of have often like ridiculous imagery. Um, I, I reproduced one um, in the book where it's a it's seemingly a bunch of children who are being asphyxiated by particularly smelly cheese, or there are images of bottles with human heads. And these trade cards were a form of advertisement like uh, the posters. Uh, often the imagery did not relate with the particular business or product being advertised. But what's interesting is that these were also uh, collector's items. And so I kind of try to figure out how well-to-do men connected with the avant-garde associate themselves with the poster and elevate it out of the realm of ephemera in which basically these trade cards are relegated. So in order to make this distinction, in order to elevate the poster uh, to the realm of fine art, there has to be basically a kind of uh, social and cultural capital associated with it. And by putting these two forms of chromolithography side by side, I'm able to point um, more clearly to how that happens, how, how the process 
of the poster being art as opposed to ephemera involves the investment of a large amount of social, economic, and cultural capital. It's really interesting. I mean, of course, gender plays a role in in different ways uh, throughout the book, but it really comes through, I I think, most forcefully in some ways in this chapter where you're looking at this kind of form that is associated maybe with women and children collectors, but then these bourgeois men who kind of get in on the visual cultural scene through their use or their, you know, exchange or discussions of these, these images and these posters. The epilogue of the book, Laura, uh, talks about the end of the age of Impressionism and about autochromes and neo-Impressionism. So first, if you could just kind of give us a little sketch of neo-Impressionism, but yeah, what was color photography's impact? How did it work as a turning point? Um, in this epilogue that closes the book? Mm -hmm. I consider together neo-impressionism and autochromes in part because um, they have certain formal similarities, that is to say, and and had been compared uh, previously both by uh, contemporaneous sources and, and since then in the kind of art historical literature. And this formal similarity is, is, you know, quite simple is the fact that the neo-impressionists, and here I'm thinking about artists such as uh, Georges Seurat and mm-hmm. Paul Signac, are known for their, their pointillism. Uh, they are the, the people, you know, the artists who embrace the dot and whose interpretation of color involves applying small touches of color onto mm-hmm. the canvas. Um, and likewise, uh, in a way, the autochrome, uh, this early 20th century color photography process, um, relied on small little particles of uh, potato starch mm-hmm. um, and created the, the impression of color through, through dots. And autochromes, I think it's important to remind people, are singular positive images um, a little, and, and are, are glass plates, so that they're, they're, they're slides. <laughs> and since the invention of uh, photography uh, in 1839, there's constantly discussion and anticipation of color photography. And what happens in a way is that when this new process is finally commercially available, it does some, in a a way, some catching up. And by this, I mean that photographers direct their camera toward all the different subjects and visual experiences associated with the color revolution of the previous century. So they are photographing gardens and flower cellars in in the streets. They are photographing kind of uh, spectacular, uh, fantastical scenes like acrobats. They are chronicling, in a way, the impact of the color revolution on on Paris. So what they end up constituting is not... um, simply a document of Paris as it exists in the early 20th century, but it is in fact a kind of visual archive 
of the color revolution. And, and there's something also quite distinctive about autochromes as a technology is that these color plates are actually, you know, quite large. They require um, long exposure. And the first users of autochrome plates often comment on how it's a technology that is reminiscent of the first days of photography. So there's almost a kind of thinking of color photography as both cutting edge, but also retro. Um, It is is a technology which uh, reminds uh, users of the beginnings of photography, and then through their subject matter, they are, uh, in a way, turning their camera towards different examples of how the world became more colorful, but in the previous century, leading to basically a kind of retro or nostalgic take on um, a nostalgic interpretation of color uh, in photographic form. What is striking in a way is what I describe as the retro quality of um, autochromes is also present in uh, neo-impressionism to the extent that they seek to reflect upon the history of impressionism, right, Mm -hmm. as their name indicates, and that their um, subject matter and their technique is involves a certain form of synthesis and consolidation. So what I the way I, I see these two developments as interconnected is is precisely in their attempt to summarize the uh, both the art historical and popular commercial aspects of the color revolution of the 19th century. Reading the book, Laura, I feel like my limited, you know, knowledge of the Fandosiak, I feel like the book really confirms the Fandosiak as this turning point. Is that fair to say? Oh, <laughs> I, I, I feel like, you know, I, have to. I, either, I, I either should confess, like, you got me. Oh, no, uh, no <laughs> I wasn't but, trying. <laughs> no, 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 I think it's fair kind of to go back full circle in a way. Um, the authors I was reading as an undergraduate at Concordia University in Montreal um, also posited that the fin de siècle was this pivotal moment um, associated with the birth of modernity. And I find it very difficult to, to challenge that narrative um, in a way. Uh, I'm, I could say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a convert. um, Mm -hmm. And I I don't really try to provide a a significantly different take on modernity and capitalism, and uh, the democratization of politics, and all the other things that are associated with this key moment in history. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that all of the 20th and 21st century 
was present in embryonic form in the fin de siècle? Um, obviously not. And yet I am interested in many ways in looking at this period as bringing forth some of the questions about culture, about visual culture, and the construction of meaning in an increasingly capitalist world. Um, these questions that you know continue to be important to me, just as I live my life, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so um, it's it's one of the reasons that, including for my second project, in a way, I'm I'm still still in the late 19th century. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about next and last. What are you working on now? I am working on uh, my second kind of major project is on the visual represent, visual and material representation of economic value. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I'm interested in uh, thinking about is how images and objects and places come to embody new notions of economic value that emerge in the late 19th century with the growth of the financial industry, which is, in a way, um, fundamentally disturbing certain traditional notions of what is economically valuable. More, more concretely, um, I'm, I'm interested in the arch- architecture of stock exchanges. Um, this is a, more of a transnational project that involves both France, Great Britain, and different parts of the world where their financial interests mm-hmm. uh, intersected. Um, so I have you know, chapters on the architectures of stock exchanges and a bank in Istanbul. And I also have um, other chapters on money and money-like objects. So ranging from a chapter on coin uh, designed by Oscar Rotzi, the kind of iconic La Semeuse, uh, which in fact still appears on the French Euro coin, mm-hmm. um, and also the uh, collection study and display of so-called, you know, primitive currencies from all around the empire, and how these different images and objects both give form to and challenge notions of economic value in the late 19th and early 20th century. That sounds great. Um, And I hope you'll keep me posted on the progress of that project. Laura, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing and producing this beautiful book. It was great talking to you. Uh, Thank you so much.